European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, a conversation with Margrethe Vestager, the European Union antitrust enforcer who's earned global recognition for pushing Silicon Valley to treat consumers and competitors fairly. Last month, she put herself in the running to succeed Jean-Claude Juncker as the president of the European Commission. That makes her a Spitzenkandidat, a German word that's become EU jargon for being one of the lead candidates for Mr. Juncker's job. I was intrigued to hear where Vestager, a free market liberal, stands on topics like the climate, the rise of far-right nationalism, and tax justice that are part of a progressive agenda. What follows is an edited recording of a live event organized by Res Publica Europa, which is a group of young EU officials who are venturing beyond their civil service day jobs in order to defend the European Union project. You can follow them on Twitter at respublica underscore EU. I first asked Vestager for her responses to a series of existential questions. Beatles versus Rolling Stones, that sort of thing. Commissioner, you have a great sense of humor. We all think we know you pretty well. Uh, but do we really? <laughs> as, as well as anyone else, would I say? Here are a dozen quick-fire questions. Okay. Just to make sure we do know where you stand on a few key issues. Extra points for quick responses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. Oh, very good. Very good. Uh, apples or oranges? Apples. Warhol or Rembrandt? Rembrandt. Okay. I was, not what I was expecting. Uh, aisle seat or window seat? Uh, window. Window. Always F. Okay, F. Okay. Yes. Economy, right? Oh, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> okay. Uh, hamburgers or quinoa? Quinoa. Hugo? Pardon my pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Hugo or joie de vivre? Oh, these are, these are, this is the same. Wow. Is there, are there candles and smorbrot in Joie de Vivre? Yes, of course. Okay. Yes. Smorbrot, it, it goes with everything. Okay. Um, Davos or Folkmode, the people's meeting on Bornholm? Folkmode. That's for the Danes. Master's degrees or PhDs? Oh, I, that, that could be another. I'm working on my responses as to what will I do next year. And maybe... Maybe PhD could be having an ambition to do one. Fun, funnily enough, most of us hadn't foreseen that in your future. But no, that... but just to, just to sort of get started, because the other, que- the other answer now is that I will plant trees. Okay. Yes, to compensate for the flying. Do you know which part of the world those trees are going to be planted in? 
No, but somewhere where you can get smart. Well, okay, very good. Okay. Louis Vuitton or H&M? Oh, preferably neither. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Quotas for women or no quotas? Quotas, uh, preferably informal, because otherwise we never get them. Fair enough. Android or iOS? <laughs> oh, I am strictly uh, iOS. I tried Windows, the Windows phone, but I think that is as difficult as learning a new language. So I say to try to learn a new language. Path dependency. Exactly. Okay. Belt or road? Belt. Okay, <laughs> very good. No one got the Chinese joke. That didn't get me laugh. Okay. <laughs> Europe is increasingly dependent on other parts of the world for technology and industry. And there are concerns about Huawei. The U.S. for a long time has banned Huawei from its markets effectively. Do you think that that's the right answer for the strategic and security interests of the EU? What we have been suggesting to, to member states is to say there is a full sort of chain of of uh, events or circumstance where you would want to have a national sort of security evaluation of equipments, software, relationship with your provider, a relationship between provider of technology and uh, the telco, which typically would, would own the frequencies when you do 5G. So if you do sort of your security evaluation in all these different sort of part of providing 5G, Let's then do sort of a European-wide uh, scoping so we can deal with this with an objective background and be done with this already by June or July. Because we cannot discuss it just on the basis of someone having heard something about some legislation in China that will make Huawei do some things that we don't want them to do. We need to be much more sort of in-depth, efficient in our analysis before we can take any kind of decisions uh, on that. I think some of the decisions taken already, they are taken on, on, on business terms. I think in Denmark they negotiated hard uh, in order to get the best prices and the best rollout, and they decided to change to, I think, Ericsson instead of Huawei. I think in general, we have to sort of reconsider, because part of our problems is also a side of our success, that the world is growing, that trade is working, that many more people are prosperous. That poverty is very close to be eradicated, at least extreme poverty. poverty. And, and in that, of course, we also had to reconsider our own role when we are not the only ones who are advanced in technology and production and trade and finding that multilateral ways are the best way to serve our own purposes. I mean, as much as you say that Europe is a, an, an important market and can set the rules, which is, I think, where you were going with mm -hmm. that, there's also... Another narrative about Europe, that it kind of lacks startups, it lacks unicorns. It does not have the capacity to have developed in the way that Silicon Valley has developed. But these are two different things. They are two different things. Because we have numerous startups. Uh, what we need is the growth. Uh, because you're completely right to say that we have no businesses that has grown to a thousand employees uh, in the last, I think, I don't know how long. So, of course, we need more, but we have a lot to build on because you have clever people, you have bright ideas, because you see how Google and the Thoughts go shopping in Europe. Because they go shopping 
And what you see is that amazing ideas in startups, they don't get to get scale-ups. Maybe because they have been missing a digital single market. Maybe because they don't have access to sufficient capital to do that. Or maybe because they created the company to be able to sell it to someone that would pay a lot of money. When you think, though, about the whole sort of mentality of move fast and break things, mm -hmm. that can have damaging consequences. And, and some of the decisions that you have taken have been the ones that have led the world in trying to address that damage that's been done. What do you think deep down about this whole philosophy of disruptive technology? Do you find that that is a sort of attractive way of looking at the 21st century economy? No. Uh, we are in an industrial revolution, uh, I think the fourth, and to some degree we follow the same pattern as in previous industrial revolutions, only much faster, because the scope and the speed of this technology is so much different from the steam machine. But with the steam machine, they were also moving fast at 30 kilometers per hour, uh, and they were also breaking things, because you found new ways of production, you moved the textile industry, a lot of different things. It took quite some time before democracy responded to that, with working hours, with decent working conditions, minimizing child labor, all of that. We're doing the same thing now. We're getting sort of in democratic control, or we're framing, we're giving our society direction with the cases that we do, yes, but also with all the regulation that is now being passed. We have sort of a societal democratic response to a technological revolution in order to say, well, citizens should decide because society is here to serve citizens and the markets are here to serve consumers. And this is why, of course, there is some catching up. You mentioned the climate crisis. This is a very interesting moment for that because we have school kids on the streets. We're just entering into another summer where parts of Europe kind of seem to catch fire, just like California. People are on the move in greater, greater numbers, and that's just going to increase. I'm going to try and ask a question that combines climate a little bit with competition. Isn't it time to cut off all public subsidies to fossil fuels? and try and incentivize CO2 reduction and really level the playing field to make sure those technologies emerge on time to stop the planet burning, fundamentally. Yeah, but then the risk is, of course, that you have the Champs-Élysées burning. And, and that doesn't really work. You need to have a process where people are on board. Take a decision taken back in the 90s where the council decided that you could give no restructuring aid to coal mines. You could only give closing aid. We are in that process and it was supposed to end now and the big success is that all the mines that were supposed to close, they are now closing because they, it didn't make economic sense anymore. But you have been doing that while at the same time enabling programs for reskilling people allowing for new investment, new kind of startup, new kind of industry coming into these areas. Because if you've been in the coal business in four generations, it's not just the business, it is what you do. And it's also understandable that when you transition into renewables, you would want to make sure that while you transition, you still have lights and heating. 
which is why some of the sort of the backup mechanisms that we make, they also have coal in them, but they are temporary and they're not to disturb the transition mechanism, but they make sure that on a cloudy day with no wind and no one else can supply you cross-border, you can still turn on the lights. And I, I think we have to have an approach where people find that they are counted in. It's not just some elite that want to save the planet. It's for all of us. Um, okay, so on to, on to politics. This was also politics. True. <laughs> yes. True. On to, on to you know, on substance, to, real stuff. On to Brussels bubbles. Oh, Let me put oh, it oh. Yes, I'm going to use the word Spitzenkandidat. I'm sorry. <laughs> What sort of led you to add your name to the Spitzenkandidat list? Well, the idea of setting up a team is disrupting the Spitzenkandidat idea. Uh, because it sort of loses meaning to have seven. <laughs> that's, that's a very sort of broad Spitz. I don't, it's, I don't even know if you have a tool that... Well, anyway. Because then you can have a different debate. You can have a debate on where we want to go. And it is more important than who is who in Brussels. Because the commission does not not only need a new face. It also needs to do things in new ways. And you have to discuss that and create ownership to that. Because otherwise, no matter who you have in the commission, can do nothing about it. Because we have a democracy of directly elected and member states. And they will have to be on board, sort of on the broad priorities. Because otherwise, we'll get nowhere. So given that there are seven... Um, oh, I forgot to answer your question. Um, <laughs> what made me uh, put myself out there? Well, for one particular reason, if I can do anything to inspire people to vote, if this in any way can help to participate in some of the debates, I'll do that. Half of Europeans will not vote. Not because they have decided not to vote. It's just not on their radar. So they just don't do it. You need to inspire people to take part in their democracy. So given that we have these seven candidates, I mean, how, how soon do you think the liberal camp will unite around one candidate? Do, do you expect that to happen? Oh, you cannot know liberals very well. <laughs> because unity is definitely not sort of on the top three of things we like to do. I was a leader of a party, and had it been a business, we would have been a great success, because we had a spin-off of three parties while I was ahead of it. They are all kind of liberals. So, so unity is not something that easily sort of floats in our veins. I think we'll have to wait till after the election, because then council and parliament will have to co-decide as to what to do. And this is part of our criticism of the Spitzenkandidat process, is this idea that the parliament automatically decides who's going to be this or that. So we don't really foresee you doing a sort of personal campaign at any moment, really? No posters, no, no flyers, no key hangers. <laughs> so what do you think the liberals' red lines should be? For example, should they work with the EPP if Orbán's Fidesz is still part of that group. Uh, there's also Alde Romania, which has raised some issues. 
Well, I think for any practical purposes, the other Romania has been expelled. A, a sort of a broad coalition to cover the majority in the European Parliament, rule of law will have to be one of the absolute cornerstones of that. Which is why it is kind of tricky to work with a political family who has members who are not even in the gross grey zone, but in the very, very dark grey zone, uh, with the Commission having lawsuits against them because of the way that they organise uh, their democracy uh, and their legal system. The European Commission could really be undermined during the next five-year cycle if Rome, if Warsaw, if even Vienna, if Budapest sends people to Brussels who are populists, who are anti-migrant, who have full-on Islamophobic views. My question to you is, in that case, should the Parliament be prepared to block those nominees and should the Parliament be prepared to extend the current mandate of the Commission Oh, but of course, one of the first trips we did together as a commission was to go to Luxembourg. And in front of 37 judges in ropes, I literally had my hand on the treaty to swear that I would take no instru instructions, seek no instructions, but be the defender of the treaty. And that I take actually quite literally, uh, because you will have to be able to do that. And if you don't believe in rule of law and the values of the treaty, you cannot do that with honesty in your heart. If you, if you take a sort of Scandinavian approach to the European Union, you, you put a primacy on, on some of the values that you've just described. Other parts of the Union, they may not put a priority on, on, on the same sorts of things. And here we start asking ourselves, well, well can a Europe of 27, ho hopefully 28, but 27, really work together in the way that the treaty envisages? Yes, yes, I think so. Also because there's no sort of templates of rule of law. Everything will have to follow this exact recipe. You can do things in different ways, but there are things that you cannot do. We see examples of that right now. We see that in Poland. We see that in Hungary. There are things that you cannot do. And you may have different priorities, but you still signed up for membership for full membership. It's not a Netflix account where you just see what you want to see and you just skip the rest. It's everything. How would you assess, essentially, the rule of law procedures so far? Do you think that the Commission could have been tougher in some ways on Warsaw and Budapest? Well, we... These are some of the things that we've been discussing a lot, and, and they're very different. Uh, the Polish situation is different from the Hungarian situation. Whenever there was a possibility to do sort of very specific procedures to take the country to, to court, we've been doing that. And that has proven to be quite effective. The problem is that with some of the sort of really in-your-stomach value questions, you don't have this access, and you only have Article 7. Because we have lawsuits when it comes to uh, gender equality, for instance. We have lawsuits on a number of other things, where you have sort of the very specifics of the treaty. But sort of on the very broad questions, we only have Article 7. And this is, of course, why we have suggested in our proposal for the next multi-annual financial framework to say there must be consequences. 
if, if you want to be part of this, then there is a consequence if you do not live up to what you signed up to. And this, I think, is, is needed, because otherwise I think we, we lack tools in order to get there. So money rather as well as lawsuits? Well, if it was Denmark, it could be fishing quotas. We like them very much. Okay. <laughs> so this is also sort of a values question. I mean, people who have startups, like me, I suppose, we think you're the bee's knees, we think you're the cat's pajamas, because you know, you're leveling the market for digital competition in Europe, and, and that's terrific. But I'm, I'm really less sure about those in our societies who feel like they've been, you know, who are the sort of the left behinds. They feel left behind by globalization, other changes. How should Brussels represent the interests of those people, the left behinds, the gilets jaunes type people? I'll throw this out as well. Should those citizens' consultations be continued, even though they are really pale imitation of participatory democracy? What do you mean by that? Uh, for the citizens' consultations? Yes. What I mean by that is that, generally speaking, you might have commissioners sent to a member state, and there'll be a very nice meeting, but they will be on a panel, rather like you and I are right now, and there will be people in the audience who ask questions and get responses, which is all very well, but you don't have what amounts to a kind of joint decision-making process which starts to approach a vision of participatory democracy. And it, it, it might not necessarily be decision-making, but it would be the kind of thing that Respublica is doing, where, where people start to draw up their own ideas for how Europe should operate. Now that, that's, a, that's a good point, where we have this access for citizen initiatives. We discuss them, but they are sort of part of commission program. I don't think that it really works as an invitation to engage. This cannot sort of come from Brussels. It has to come from civil society. And yes, you're right about the citizen dialogues, but I think they make sense to the people who come. They make sense to me, at least, and I'm one of the people who come. Because it's, it's also a good thing that people who are engaged and who may have sort of a, a positive or constructive approach to having European democracy, well, they have a right to be heard as well as those who put on a yellow vest. My point is to say, well, I think you have a group who are firm believers of having European democracy, you have a group of people who are, you know, absolutely against it. But it's highly likely you will have a majority to, you know, get the shopping done and uh, get the children from school and to football, and they don't think much about it. But actually, in the light from the American administration and, and the Brexit processes, they think mm, it may be a good thing that we have a European democracy after all. To invite them, that takes something else. And part of that should not come from Brussels. It should come from civil society, which is one of the things that goes through Europe and ought to do that much more. Because I don't think that there is a tech uh, shortcut to this. On the contrary... Maybe actually we need to repair some of the tech damages to our democracy by coming more together and discussing more and being more able to disagree with people without finding that they are stupid. What we learned from Cambridge Analytica uh, is that micro-targeting can really be used to 
alter our perceptions of reality. They can even, it can even swing elections. Do you think Brussels should have, could have done more than have a voluntary code of practice on Facebook, Twitter, and Google for disinformation and fake news, especially in the run-up to these elections? This is not the only thing. Colleagues uh, of mine, uh, Maria Gabriel in particular, has done a lot of work, I think great work, to set up processes to allow for people to have better information, for journalists to access information, to do the full research, not to correct everyone and say, oh, wrong, lifted, pointed finger, but to say, well, here are more information, because we still have, as citizens, to apply common sense. You know, we kind of need the equivalent to, if it's too good to be true, probably it's not. Also, if it's too bad to be true, probably it's not. But we sort of kind of lack the symmetry here. I mean, brain chemistry, we're now learning that brain chemistry can really be altered by, again, the micro-targeting. So the question is now out there, you know, how much can citizens really use this concept of media literacy to educate themselves? But this is also why we need to have a different approach, because it is thought-provoking that we have long discussions and have finally uh, forbidden endocrine disruptors in feeding bottles. That is great. And it's taken a lot of work. So now the feeding bottle is safe, but you still give your baby an iPad. Uh, it may be as unsafe as the endocrine disruptors in the feeding bottle, because you have no idea how it changes your serotonin level or adrenaline or motoric capabilities. You have no idea. There's no safety instructions. There's no sort of consumer board that has been controlling if these, if these products are safe. None whatsoever. A lot of questions can be asked if they are safe. Let's wrap it up with digital taxation. Your country, Denmark, was among those that opposed the digital tax. Another data point, New York City couldn't offer Amazon enough by way of tax breaks to get them to stay. What's the big picture here when it comes to taxes on, in the digital world? Well, this is a matter of urgency. And it's also a matter of fair competition. Because you see, you know, most businesses, they pay their taxes. They just do. Maybe some are happy about it, maybe some are not. But they pay their taxes. And when you have comparable data... Then a digital business on average would pay 9% effective taxation and the rest of the business is 23%. They're in the same market for capital, skilled employees, uh, competition for customers. This is simply unfair competition. And the second thing is, as everything digitalizes, if corporate taxation doesn't understand how value is created in digital ways and what it means to have a taxable presence when you're never physically there, then, of course, corporate taxation will just become lower and lower and lower as a contribution to maintaining and developing our societies where they do a beautiful business. And I completely understand why some member states have decided that if you cannot have a European solution, they want a solution. We had some good questions at the Res Publica Europa event. Here's an edited selection, starting with John Clancy, a senior advisor with FTI Consulting Brussels. 
We constantly miss the boat as the EU. We're taking far too long, and I'd like to hear from you perhaps a half a dozen ideas on how we really change that and put teeth uh, back into perhaps our competition policy and our trade policy together. Thank you. But it, it seems as we really need it before we go get it. Uh, take the European Coast and Border Guard. When the refugees and the illegal immigrants really started coming, it only took us 11 months from a proposal was put on ta the table till the first material like, you know, barbed wire, uh, IT and people and vehicles could work on ground. Because all of a sudden everyone realized, oh, we need this. Because if someone who is supposed to police our third, uh, uh, third country borders, if they don't do it or don't have the capacity, then we need to help out. Same thing with foreign direct investment screening. All of a sudden people realize, oh, we need this. You may not have thought so back in I don't know when. Now we need this. The reform of the trade defense mechanism, trade defense tool, enables us to do that much faster, but still within WTO rules. So when we need it, we get it done. But it takes some time. I think to some degree we have forgotten that also in the beginning of the financial crisis, it wasn't pretty. It was a mess. What we had was discussions, not initiatives, not actions, not enabling uh, member states to deal with their banks being in very, very wobbly situations. The thing about conflict between member states is that this is still sort of the chance that you can change things because a conflict is a sign that things are open. People are discussing things. But it's point to what I think is the biggest challenge for Europe and that is whether or not we can find it in ourselves to find compromise. Not my solution, not your solution, but a third solution that we can both live with. If we cannot find that, then we're out of business. Because this is what we need in order to push for the things that we need. Here's a question from Benoit Roussel, a partner at G Plus Europe. One of the big debates at the moment is about shaping the, the narrative about Europe, how it is sold to voters. So my question is just, what is your own narrative about Europe? How do you sell it to voters? Well, of, of course, on the one hand side, I accept that we have a lot of problems. Uh, and these are very serious, because it's about rule of law, it's about freedom of press, it's people questioning fundamental uh, rights, as the freedom to travel and study and work in other member states. It is uh, climate change and security and cybersecurity. I accept that full shopping list of things to do. My point is that we should add all the things that we can. It is as if we don't sort of... Uh, think about what we have achieved, what skills, what competences, what ingenuity we have as Europeans. So I would like to put things in the other scale as well, to provide for a much more confident Europe. Because I think we have so much more to offer citizens. And in particular those who are, well, maybe to some degree they accept that you can be fired from, your, from where you work, from the business where you work, you can get another job. But what if you feel that you've been fired from your society? Then where do you go? For them, we have so much more to offer if Europe is much more confident in, in the solutions that we're looking for, in the speeds at which we implement them. That's part of it. And then, of course, the obvious, that if, if 
citizen in a member state wants to be empowered, then you need a strong European democracy to be able to solve things. And here's a final two questions from Thomas Barros-Tastes, the managing partner of G Plus Europe, and from Fabrice Comptour, who's part of Respublica Europa and a member of cabinet for another European commissioner. I got your narrative about uh, we have to be more proud of ourselves as a European. But if you're standing in a market in France and you have to convince someone of you know, voting on the 26th of May, what are you telling them? How do you campaign against nationalists? Because that's the thing, you know, are we going on migration issue, for instance, knowing that you may lose the argument very fast, and at the same time, what kind of narrative, therefore, you are developing, so you developed this a little bit already, but my question in short, how do you campaign against nationalists? Uh, what to tell people? I think one should tell what is, what is in your own heart. Because the problem is that if, if you have a, just a program, then everyone knows that you're just trying to sell something. Uh, when I stopped smoking, uh, it wasn't because I, I read a leaflet in my doctor's waiting room telling me that I would die. It was not because my doctors told me that I would die. It wasn't because it became more and more inconvenient to find a place to smoke. It was because my husband told me, I really love you, I think you should stop smoking. It's only passion that makes us change our minds, not the pamphlets or the experts telling you something. You need, you need to be present personally with what you think is in it. And then you can make people open up and have them maybe engage with you about what they find to be important. And that is the only way. It is a lot of time and a lot of effort. But in my experience, this is also the only thing to learn something oneself. Uh, and also on that, on, on how to campaign against populists, I think it's very important to campaign without labels, without labeling other people, you are a populist. Because most people are not populists. They are thoughtful, intelligent, engaged in their life, doing what they think is right for them in their life. And that you have to sort of have the willingness to disturb and say, I have something in my heart that I think is important. And I think it is more important that the guy over there who will persuade you to do something else. I think that is one of the most important points, not to allow this labeling or different camps to be established. Because the huge majority of people, they're not populists or nationalists or whatever. Uh, they just want to have a life. And in particular, they want to make sure that their kids can have a life on a somewhat habitable planet. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening. <laughs>